much for those gracious comments. Can you hear me in the back? No. No. You need the mic. Somebody's got the sound. You need that one. Like this one? Yes. Yeah. Oh, this oh. is just for the other one. Right. I don't want that one. Okay. <laughs> Charles, am I going to have to stand here and speak to these people looking at your red socks? <laughs> So 
you will forgive me if I am saying a lot of things subjectively about myself in connection with the pre-wrath rapture of the church. I don't have to remind this group that the second coming of Christ is the blessed hope of the church. The Apostle Paul writing to Titus said, looking for that blessed hope, even the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter spoke of the second coming as the living hope. And you will understand that when the Bible speaks of blessing, it is speaking of something that is alive, something that is living, something that is vital, something that is dynamic. And so when Paul speaks of a blessed hope and Peter speaks of a living hope, they are speaking of the same thing, and it relates to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I remind you, lest we forget the most basic of all things, that the blessed hope of the church is that Jesus is coming again. Amen. And that's not the whole ball of wax. Uh, it's wonderful to say that Jesus coming is coming again, but how does that impact me? Or what does that mean to me? I would submit to you that the overwhelming majority of believers think that the blessed hope is if only I can live, stay alive, keep breathing until Jesus comes back. If I can make it to that point without dying, that's my blessed hope. Um, that's only half a loaf. And I think we all want the whole loaf, the blessed hope, properly understood is that Jesus is coming again. And if I die before he gets back, my body will be placed into the grave, and in my view, the soul will soar consciously into the presence of God. At his coming, the dead in Christ will be resurrected, and the living will be raptured, both the dead in Christ and the living, to be forever with the Lord. Therefore, a full-orbed understanding of the blessed hope is that no matter how dark the night, no matter how long the journey, no matter how difficult the battle, no matter how formidable the obstacles, I have a blessed hope. That blessed hope is if I die, at his coming, I'll be resurrected. If I'm living, I'll be raptured. In either scenario, through death, through death or and resurrection or rapture, I will be forever with the Lord. And uh, and it's critically important that we understand that the worst the world can do to us is kill us. Now that is not hyperbole. That is not intended as exaggeration. The worst this world can do to you is kill you. It can kill you in a myriad of ways, including persecution, natural death, disaster, disease, heart attack, stroke, war. The war can kill us in a lot of ways, and it may be through great tribulation, 
But the worst the world world can do to us is kill us. Beyond the grave, this world cannot go. That's right. And therefore, I have a blessed, living, vital, dynamic hope. It is a hope only in the sense that its actualization is still the future. We use the word hope as a synonym um, for speculation. We sometimes say, I hope it doesn't rain today, but it may. Uh, sometimes we use the word hope uh, in, in the sense of a person is terminally ill, the doctors have done everything that they can do, They've performed all of their surgeries. They've used all their medicines. Uh, there's nothing else uh, in their bag. And uh, I've seen loved ones come out of the uh, hospital and say to one another, all he has left or she has left is hope. And they're using the word almost as a synonym for despair. They're saying, uh, unless there's some kind of divine intervention, uh, the conspicuous is in front of us. Our loved one is going to die. Oh, he or she has left us hope. When the Bible speaks of hope, yeah. it is speaking of something that is sure, yes. that is absolute, that is certain, that is inviolable, that is non-negotiable. And the blessed hope of the church is Jesus is coming again. It is only a hope in the sense that its actualization, uh, its occurrence is still in the future, but it is sure there's nothing of uncertainty about it. And as we consider together the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church, if we forget that the most foundational thing is we have a blessed hope that no matter what happens to us, we're going to be resurrected or we're going to be raptured to be forever with the Lord. Amen. Now... I was uh, born and raised in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, came to faith in Christ from a Jewish background as a young teenager, but rebelled against God, ran away from home, went into the military, came out, uh, had a career in professional dancing. Uh, didn't like the taste of the world. Uh, had an itching of the heart I didn't know how to scratch. I had tried enough to know that the things of this world do not really satisfy. Recommitted my life to God. Wound up in Bible college and in seminary and in the pastorate uh, in, in New Jersey. Uh, loved the pastorate, loved my people. God led me into missionary work among the Jewish people. I wasn't looking for it, wasn't searching for it, I didn't expect it, but I began to be asked to speak while a pastor, to speak at other churches, to speak for conferences, to speak for colleges and seminaries. And as the director of a now worldwide missionary organization, I was away from home about 75% of the time. Uh, traveling all over North America, Europe, South America, India, the Middle East, teaching the Word of God, missions, uh, 
teaching prophecy, uh, began to be invited to most of the major Bible conferences in the United States. Uh, I did seven, regularly, I did seven week-long conferences for Moody Bible Institute every year. Uh, when I say seven, that meant I spoke at a different church each night for seven nights. And then a month or two later, I was back for another one. Sometimes it was in California, sometimes it was in Georgia, sometimes it was in other parts of the country. Uh, but I was doing 49 different churches just for Moody Bible Institute every year. Uh, but was invited to, uh, to many churches for conferences, national conventions. And I was speaking at Word of Life, Screw Lake, New York. Beautiful Bible conference. The, the director at that time was the late Jack Wurtson, a very godly man. And uh, I had invited to speak there every year for about 19 years, uh, at least three weeks a year at their different facilities. On this particular occasion, I was invited as the Bible teacher for the week, what they call the Word of Life Inn. And the first day there, a gentleman walked up to me and he introduced himself. Uh, I knew who he was by name. He knew who I was by name. Um, we, had a, we had a friend who had spoken to each of us about the other. Uh, his name was Robert Van Campen. And uh, we chat, chatted for a few moments. Our wives were with us. And he said, do you play tennis? Uh, I never thought about it before, but look at that legend. He said, uh, do, you, do you play tennis? I said, uh, yeah, I do. And uh, I knew that he was a competitor. I knew that he was a ferocious competitor uh, at everything he does. And I also knew that he was a very wealthy businessman, and I was told that he might be interested in our ministry. And so we went out to play tennis, and our wives were sitting along the side and talking, and I said to myself, I've got to beat this guy. <laughs> Fortunately, I was a lot thinner. I was uh, about 21 or 22 years younger. I was playing a lot of tennis, and I beat him. And it was probably significant, because afterwards he said, be free for dinner. And uh, I said, uh, yeah, I've got to speak tonight, uh, but I'm free for dinner. He said, well, would you and your wife join my wife and I? And I said, we'd be uh, delighted to do that. Uh, he was also going to speak that week. He was invited for three days. And... Uh, that Jack Wurtson would invite a successful Christian businessman each week uh, to come to Word of Life and to share their testimony. And he had been invited for that purpose. I was there as the Bible teacher for the week. And so we sat down to eat in their lovely dining room. And uh, as we sat down and uh, somebody returned, uh, Grace, thanks for the food, uh, Bob was sitting across from me, and I, I shall never forget it, uh, he said, uh, then he looked at his watch, and he said, you've got 10 minutes to tell me why I should be interested in your ministry, and was silent. 
I was dumbfounded. I met with lots of people in lots of situations from all stations of life, but I never had anybody look at his watch and say, you have 10 minutes to tell me why I should be interested in your ministry. Well, if you think they were fast, you should have heard me that night. This was a Jewish boy from Philadelphia who pulled out all the stops. I wanted to impress him with our, I thought, wonderful Christ-centered ministry. And I'm talking away as fast as I can. And all of a sudden, Bob Van Campen and those who know him can identify with this. All of a sudden, Bob Van Campen went like this, looked at his watch, and he said, your time is up. We finished eating, uh, had the service that night, uh, fellowship with some of the people in their Olympic uh, uh, facility that they had, went to bed. The next day, Bob Van Campen came up to me and he said, you got a few minutes? I said, yeah. And he said, I've got some questions. He started to ask me about the rapture of the church. Well, that wasn't new to me. Anywhere I would go and preach and teach, there are always believers who come up and have questions, and uh, usually it's relatively easy to respond to their questions and try to be as helpful as one can, and I responded to his questions. Uh, Later in the day, he found me again. Uh, He had some more questions. I responded to them and went on my business. The next day, he found me again. He had more questions about the rapture of the church. These were sincere questions. Uh, Robert Van Campen uh, had a brilliant mind, a logical mind, um, and a great love for God's word an absolute conviction that it was the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. And he wanted to know God's truth. So he asked me some more questions and I answered them and I thought, boy, he's pretty persistent. And he left, he and his wife. I didn't think any more about it. I got home a few days later from that uh, week of meetings and the phone rang it was Robert Van Camper. Uh, by now I was calling him Marv and I was calling him uh, Bob. He said, uh, I've got a few more questions. And over the phone for about a half hour I tried to respond to those questions. He began to call me about four or five times a week. And uh, after the third or fourth day I thought this guy's really persistent. And then I began to think, this guy's a pain in the neck. <laughs> Can I ask the Lord to forgive me? This went on for a couple of months. I never had anything like it. Talk about tenacious. Robert Van Campen was tenacious. He had a hot heart for God and a desire to know God's truth. I would find out later he lived in Chicago, outside of Chicago, would take the train in, 
and would be a member of faculty members from Moody Bible Institute, and he would tell me that he bugged them so much uh, on the train going in to Chicago that they used to hide from him on the train. <laughs> he kept calling me. And I said to my wife, this guy won't quit. And then one day he called. And he said, Marv, let me ask you a question about Revelation chapter 6. He said, let me ask you about the sixth seal of Revelation chapter 6. He says, it seems to me like the text is saying that when that seal is opened, that men are going to hide in the caves and the dens, rich men, noble men, men from all stations of life are going to hide. And they're going to hide from the wrath of the Lamb because His wrath has come. Yes, Lord. And He said, how can His wrath come after the opening of the sixth seal which you already acknowledged is sometime beyond the midpoint of the of the great tribulation how can his wrath begin at the opening of the sixth seal and how can his wrath begin at the beginning of that 70th week or what is commonly called the tribulation period and he hung up and I have a lot of flaws and a lot of failings but one thing I have never played games with is the word of God as he as he posed that question to me I went back to my office he at that point had no answer but he had the question and I said, that's an intriguing question. What do I do with it? What do I do with the fact that after the opening of the sixth seal of Revelation, it says God's wrath has come? I said, well, I better look at the tense of this verb, come. It's an aorist tense. Is it speaking about something that was in the past? Uh, but by the time I got to Revelation chapter 19, I read that the that the wedding of the Lamb was about to come. It was the identical word and the identical tense as Revelation chapter 6. And it was clear in Revelation 19 that it was an overhanging event that was about to commence. So I couldn't say that his wrath has come speaking about something in the past. It was an event that was about to commence. Back to Mark chapter 14. And I read the words of the Lord where he said, speaking of Calvary, my hour is come. And it was the same word and the same tense. And it was speaking of an overhanging event that was about to begin his crucifixion. He said, my hour is come. Revelation 19 the weddings come. It's about to start. I came back to Revelation chapter 6 and I said, looking at the chronology, looking at the breaking of the seals, looking at the sequence of events, I said, this is something that's about to begin and it's way beyond the midpoint of the seventh week of the book of Daniel. 
how do I explain my pre-tribulation rapturism, which says God's wrath began at the beginning of the 70th week, when this text clearly says it doesn't begin until beyond the midpoint of the 70th week. And I went back to the Old Testament and began to study what the Old Testament had to say about the day of the Lord. And the more I studied, the more confused I became. I said, how can pre-tribulation rapturism be correct in the light of what I'm now discovering? And so I decided that I must take this seriously. There was enough that forced me to say, I must study this. And so I did for a couple of months. And the more, the more I studied, quite frankly, the more problems I found for pre-tribulation rapturism. Finally, I went to my board of directors. I was directing now a large worldwide missionary agency with about 100 missionaries with a large, very large budget. with 152 acres with brand new beautiful offices we already had approved plans for a 20 million dollar complex that we would begin constructing uh, we were going to expand our graduate school uh, develop a conference ministry build some of the things that eventually would be built here in Orlando with the Holy Land experience it was a major undertaking for the ministry and I now had a big migraine. The mission had a doctoral statement. They had not had a doctoral statement for years until I came. And I said, this is a mission, we have to have a doctoral statement. And so I wrote the statement, presented it to the board, the board approved it, and part of that doctoral statement said that we believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. We further said that all administrators had to sign that statement each year. And now I was beginning to question what I'd been taught in Bible college, what I'd been taught in seminary, what I'd been preaching all over the world in major conferences, Bible colleges, seminaries, churches, conference grounds. And so I felt it would be unethical for me to go on with this building program without without alerting my board to the fact that I was restudying my position on the rapture of the church. And so I went into the board, maybe three or four months before we were going to break ground. And I said, gentlemen, I have a question concerning the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And in light of the fact that we are, we're all about to start a massive building program and spend a lot of money, I think it's important that you know that I'm dealing with this. They postponed uh, the breaking of ground and said, uh, take your time and uh, do your writing. I told them I wanted to set aside all of my books, all of my commentaries, uh, all of my uh, Bibles with notes, uh, all of the 
notes I had taken at lectures in Bible college and seminary. I had studied under John Wolbert, and he called the dean of pre-tribulation rapturism. And uh, Charles Ryrie, both in Bible college and seminary, and Dwight Pentecost who wrote Things to Come, and Stanley Toussaint, and so many others who were, to a large degree, the leading uh, advocates of pre-tribulation rapturism. So I knew what pre-tribulation rapturism taught. But I said, I have to put everything aside, and I have to study, and I have to do it from the Word of God alone, and I've got to put it into writing. About six months passed, as I studied the Word, and I began to weep in the privacy of my study. When for the first time I became convinced that my pre-tribulation rapturism might be wrong. And I had been teaching it all over the world with sincerity. I had been taught it. And uh, for me, some of my professors were almost like the fourth member of the Trinity. Some of them could walk on water. And if they taught it, for me it had to be right. I mean, I respected some of these men that much, even though there were always, and for so many, there have always been problems when they get to the Olivet Discourse and First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians and Revelation and other places. And I realized I could be wrong. And I spent another four or five months writing. Then I told my board that I could no longer embrace the pre-tribulation rapture. <coughs> uh, the men who taught me these things were not my enemies. I loved them. They were godly men. They were Christian leaders, many of them of the highest rank. And in so many areas of theology, they were among the best. But they had the same problem that I had, quite frankly. <clears throat> they were taught it by their professors. And they believed it the same way. And so I told my board, I could no longer sign our doctrinal statement. Well, that created quite a problem. Uh, we were a faith mission. We were supported uh, by the Christian public. More than 25% of our support, remember we had over 100 missionaries and office staff. We published a magazine with a circulation of 285,000. And most of our support came from pre-tribulation, rapture, churches, pastors, and Christians. More than 25% of our support came from churches. And now the board said, what are we going to do? If we let Mars stay, we're going to lose most of the support which is critical for this ministry. If we don't allow him to stay, 
and he makes a fuss, we'll lose a lot of the support from people who respect Marv. And they asked that I come back to the next board meeting and give to them a presentation of my view. They also contacted three leading pre-tribulation raptures from three seminars and asked that they read the book and respond to the board. I submitted the, the manuscript to, to Thomas Nelson Publishers. Uh, they said immediately we want to publish it. And they, in turn, sent it to three theologians. They wanted to read it. Uh, one of them was Charles Ryrie. I was supposed to make a presentation to the board to explain to them why I believed in the pre-wrath rapture. The meeting was held. I was dismissed. They wanted me for a few moments, they said. I came back in before my presentation, and they said, we have decided that we're going to dismiss you from the mission. A chance to give that presentation, but one of the board members stood up and said, It's an issue of support. Which way will we lose most support? <laughs> uh, my son was about to graduate from Bible college. I had been scheduled for almost a year to be the speaker at the graduation. I was on the board of that institution. <clears throat> I was on the executive committee of that institution. I had helped them to relocate to their new facility. Uh, I had uh, done some teaching for them uh, when they needed somebody quickly. I was the alumni of the year a few years earlier. I had a call about three weeks before my son was going to graduate graduate, and they said, we're sorry, but we, we can't have you speak at the graduation. I was supposed to speak at a national convention uh, where there'd be several thousand uh, pastors. I'd spoken at the national conventions of the past, the regional conventions, and uh, I was canceled. I was scheduled to speak at probably uh, 10 or 12 churches in the next three or four months, a number of conferences. Uh, they were all canceled. Uh, nobody asked what I believed. Uh, nobody asked for a presentation. Nobody read my book. It was not yet published. But they knew that I had uh, forsaken pre-tribulation rapturism. Uh, that was viewed by many as heretical. And therefore, all of that came to a screeching halt. I have to tell you that that didn't stop in the next six months. I direct a mission here in the Orlando area. We, we publish a magazine. Uh, among other things, it goes out to 13,000 churches and pastors. And uh, they have been invited uh, if they don't care for the magazine, if they don't want to get the magazine, to just let us know and 
we'll stop sending it to them. They all want the magazine. <coughs> They're all reading what we write. Many of them have changed the views. But whereas before I changed my pre-trib view, we had more than 25% of our support coming from churches and Christians, we have almost no support from churches now. Now churches get our publications, uh, they get our cassettes, they embrace a lot of the material, and I get pastors who call me all the time and say, what should I do? Uh, I'm supposed to retire in three years. If I come out publicly and tell my congregation I've embraced the pre-wrath rapture, I'll be fired. And I'll lose my pension. What should I do, Marv? Uh, I'm in fellowship with a group of pastors. If I tell them that I've embraced the pre-trib rapture, the pre-wrath rapture, they'll call me a heretic. What should I do? Uh, I get letters almost every week from people who say, can you recommend a pre-wrath rapture church? I've been thrown out of my church. Now, I want you to hear me well. I do not... I do not get angry at these people. I do not feel that they're bad people. I do not blame them for their actions. I remember when I was still a pre-trib rapturist, I had a friend, pastor in South Jersey, and one day I heard that he had become a post-tribulation rapturist. I never called him. I never wrote him. I never said, what's the basis of your changed view? Explain it to me. Let's have lunch. I just said, what a shame. Another good pastor has blown it. I did to others precisely what some are doing to me. I don't justify it, but I understand it. When you are a pastor, you are trained to hold tenaciously to the great doctrines of the church. There is an inclination for a pastor to hold tightly to what he believes or what he's been taught and only slow to let go or change and when you've been a pastor for 20, 30, 40 years and you pounded the pulpit and said to your people I'm waiting for the upper taker not the undertaker we're not going to go through the great tribulation we're going to be raptured before that occurs when you were brought up as I was with the C.I. Schofield Bible and later with the Ryrie Study Bible 
and MacArthur Study Bible, and on and on it goes, and you look at their notes, and these are men that I love, and I respect. And when these men have written the notes in their Bibles, I had one of the best known theologians in the country. You would know him immediately. I'm deliberately not utilizing names. You would know him immediately. We spoke at length on the phone. And I'll never forget, he said, Marv, you're probably right. And the pre-wrath rapture will probably be the view of the church in about 50 years. But it's not the view of the church today. To which I responded, what's that got to do with it? If it's true, if it's going to be true 50 years from now, it's going to be true today. Yeah, but, but my books... My cassettes, my CDs, my my sermon notes, my lectures to my students are all preacher rapture. I'm still living. Fifty years down the road is okay, but not now. Listen, it is it is almost there are some wonderful notable exceptions. It is almost impossible for a pastor, seminary professor, a Bible college professor who has been taught the pre-trib rapture at many of our schools, has believed it and preached it for many years, to put on those brakes and say, wait a minute, I'm wrong. I perhaps, I perhaps am in a special situation because of the publication of our magazine, because our CDs and cassettes are sent out all over the world, I get thousands of letters every year. And now thousands of emails and phone calls. And I want you to know that myriads, myriads of people in America are turning to the pre-wrath rapture of the church. But what you also have to understand is that it is not coming from the top down. It is, it is almost impossible when you're going at 125 miles an hour. You can't stop in 15 feet. It sometimes takes years. And, and I am amazed to listen carefully to some of the men who were dogmatically pre-tribulation raptured ten years ago. And more and more of them who are saying, well, I'm a pre-tribulation rapturist, but I could be wrong. We might be going through hard times. And I am seeing a change on the part of many who were once dogmatic and are now becoming far less dogmatic. And I am also seeing others who are turning to the pre-wrath rapture, absolutely convinced of it. And let me tell you, once the reality of the pre-wrath rapture of the church takes hold of your soul, you will never, ever again 
be the same. I hear I hear men from time to time saying, well, I'm not interested in eschatology. I'm not interested in, in the rapture of the church. I'm only interested in practical things living today. Dear citizens of heaven, forgive me, but that's absurd. The most practical doctrine there is is the second coming of Christ. Amen. Whenever you read in the Bible about the second coming of Christ, it will always be something like, well, in the light of this, what manner of person ought I to be? In the light of this, how should I order my life? In the light of this, how shall I spend my time? The second coming of Christ is not imminent. Forgive me. No, don't forgive me. But I'm saying it, I hope, graciously. The Bible does not teach imminence. You will look in vain for any text, if you look at it carefully, that teaches the imminent, any moment, signless return of Christ. What the Bible does teach is expectancy. They're two different things. The Lord can come in my lifetime. I must live legitimately with the expectation that he could come in my lifetime. Now you think with me for, for, for just a moment. What, what would it be like? If the Bible said that in the year 136, Jesus is coming back. Or suppose it was in the year 527 A.D., the Lord is coming back. Or suppose it was in in 1846, the Lord is coming back. Or suppose it was in the year 2055, the Lord is coming back. If you were living in the second century... And the Bible said Jesus is coming back in the 20th century. Do you think that you would be living with the expectation that he could come in your lifetime? Do you think the impact would be... Don't you understand that God deliberately left that open-ended so that every generation would live with the expectation that Jesus could come in my lifetime? And I want to be watching, and I want to be ready, and I want to be investing my time for eternity. There is no more practical doctrine than the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blessed hope of the church. And so Jesus is coming again, and it isn't, the pre-wrath isn't growing from the leadership down. It is growing from the people in the pews up. Because there are people, and I I told you I have an advantage, I get all these letters, and I get all these, and some of you are out in hard places, and you are pre-wrath, and you can't find a church that's pre-wrath, and you can't find many people in fellowship that are pre-wrath. Well, I'm telling you that they're all over the place. You won't find a lot of churches, within the scheme of the millions of people you're not going to find great numbers but they're all over 
and it's coming from Sunday school teachers and godly men and women who are embracing it and then teaching it in their Sunday school classes. And then somebody saying, did you read this book by Robert Van Campen to the pastors? And it was spreading, and it was spreading quickly. But dear citizens of heaven, let's not do what has been done to us. If we really want to impact our world for Christ, and if we really want to communicate the burning message in our souls that the church is going to go through very difficult times, be thou faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life if it is necessary. Take up your cross and follow me did not mean now you're going to have some difficulties through each day. It meant if you're going to follow me, be willing to die for me. Amen. Amen. So this, this stuff about, well, we're going to be whisked to heaven on clouds these is not biblical. But if we really want to impact our world, our church, our friends, it's not by being nasty, bitter, or argumentative. It's to lovingly, graciously share the truths as you understand it. When I wrote the pre-wrath rapture of the church in 1990, it was published, I believe, and I wrote in the introduction something like, in two years, it will become a view. In about five years, a lot of people are going to hear about it. In about 15 years, it's going to be a major position within the church. That was in 1990. Uh, I didn't know that that Charles was going to talk about 15 years and beyond for pre-wrath rapturism. Uh, I'm sure it didn't come from my book, but since he noted it, I note that I wrote that in the book in 15 years. And last year, I got a call from the senior editor of Zondervan, and he said, Marv, we'd like to send you a contract. Uh, We want to publish a book on the rapture, and uh, we want to get one, one theologian to write on the post-trib rapture, one to write on the pre-trib rapture, and one you to write on the pre-wrath rapture of the church. We feel that the pre-wrath rapture uh, has overtaken mid-tribulation rapturism and is now the major view. Fifty pages uh, presenting our view, and then we were to get the other two positions, and we were to have fifteen pages for each of those to rebut. Um, I got mine done on time. Uh, the guy 
writing the post-trib rapture, that many of you would know his name, uh, he got his about two weeks late. Uh, the guy who was supposed to write the pre-trib rapture, very well known, um, at present he's about four months late, <laughs> and I wonder if he's going to be left behind. Outstanding books uh, which followed, and you may be interested in knowing that I've got at least seven or eight books in support of Free Wrath that have been sent to me over the last few years, and probably 40 or 50 uh, uh, lengthy documents. Uh, so it is spreading, it is spreading quickly. But I want to read in closing something to you. Uh, normally I don't read anything this long more than a couple of lines. This is two or three minutes worth. Uh, but it comes from a, from a book that was written in 1960 by J. Sidlow Baxter. And actually, it was a six-volume set that took you through the entire Bible. And J. Sidlow Baxter was a very godly man and a brilliant pastor I'm old enough to remember having heard him on a number of occasions when I was younger, came, I think, from England. And, and as he was writing about the book of Revelation in the six volume set, he wrote these words. Again and again, we meet persons who hold the common idea that the church will have been translated, that is, raptured to heaven, before the great tribulation develops on earth. Yet to us, their main reason for so believing seems doubtful. They say, we cannot think that the church could possibly be left on earth during those awful few years which end the present age, because that will be the time when the judgments and wrath of God are poured down upon the earth. And how could the church be allowed on earth to undergo all that since the cross of Christ has saved believers from such judgment? Yet... There are passages in the New Testament which to our own minds certainly seem to show that believers of the last days, then in parenthesis there's only one small part of the total church on earth at any given moment, will be on earth during the so-called Great Tribulation. 2 Thessalonians 2 is one such. And then he writes, We know what a touchy point this has been, and do not purpose to develop discussion of it here. But we do suggest that there is one fact which has hitherto been overlooked, namely that the great tribulation and the wrath of God are not 
identical. When Christians say they cannot think that the church could be left on earth during the Great Tribulation because it is then that the wrath to come is poured out, they are confusing things which differ. The wrath of God is the last awful end bit which immediately follows Matthew 24, 29, the Great Tribulation. Now certainly no blood-bought, spirit-sealed member of the Lord's mystic body can be thought of as left on earth and undergoing that. Yet it is quite possible, and from some passages of the New Testament seem to us necessarily implied that believers will be here during the Great Tribulation when the man of sin is here. We do not here dogmatically affirm either one way or the other, but we think that the distinction which we have made, or rather which we believe the Scriptures make, between the Great Tribulation and the wrath of God is important. Remember the Great Tribulation is largely of satanic instigation through the man of sin, whereas the wrath of God is entirely an affliction from God himself. Certainly the book of Revelation, also Matthew 24, seem to observe this distinction. When the Great Tribulation and the wrath of God are treated as identical, confusion results, as one may see from some of the varying analyses and explanations of the book. Now, he wrote that in 1960, 30 years before I wrote the pre-wrath rapture of the church, more years than that before Robert Van Campen wrote his books. And I have, in the years that followed my writing of the pre-wrath rapture, not only come across this, but other writings of men who held that is the sixth, the opening of the sixth seal, that the rapture of the church will take place. And I must tell you that if one studies the early church fathers in the second and third centuries, those who wrote on the second coming of Christ and touched on the subject said without exception that the church would encounter the tribulation and the Antichrist before it was raptured. It is clearly, they didn't use terms pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, but they clearly taught that the church would experience great difficulties and the Antichrist before the rapture of the church took place. I'm saying that to say it is not the pre-wrath that is the new guy on the block. Pre-wrath is consistent with what the early church taught. And uh, there are those who are open to listen and may we be found faithful because I am convinced I am convinced that we are rocketing toward the end of this age and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, what we do, we must do quickly. And we must do it with all our minds. Thank you, and the Lord bless.